All right. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome tonight to another broadcast of Your Questions, God's Questions. We are today the 19th of July, 2021. Let me fix this mic a little bit so you can hear me a little better. I think I'm coming in loud and clear, but let me know if I am not. Check one. Yeah, we're good. Um, So welcome tonight, and uh, we're going to deal with another question uh, in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to visit and say hello. I would invite you to use the comments section, all right? Let me know who's watching. Maybe you've got some other questions that'll come up as we're dealing with the material tonight. We try to do this on Wednesday, uh, Monday nights as we get questions that come in, and I've got a real good one tonight. And hello, Elisha and Jilda, and God bless you tonight. Great to have you on the broadcast from Brossard. And uh, yeah, let us know where you're from, where you're watching. I see the people coming on and people coming off. Maybe that's Facebook. I'm not sure. Uh, but um, it's nice to be with you tonight. And so when we do get questions, I will uh, do a little stream like this, and I've been dealing with people's Bible questions for a long time, probably 20 plus years. And uh, this is a really good question that has uh, come to us tonight. A couple of announcements again before we do that, as people are jumping on here, hopefully. Um, We are going to continue our Zoom Bible study on Wednesday nights, talking about living through the desert experiences in life. And uh, we've got some great content from that the world may know, and they are on site in some of the deserts that are mentioned in the Bible. And uh, some great lessons to be learned as we see uh, how people experienced God in difficult times and in good times. And uh, the desert, in some ways, can represent both. So uh, that's a Zoom Bible study that we do on Wednesday nights at 7. You should have the link already, but if you do not, you can reach out to me and I will send that Zoom link to you. All of our contact information is on our website, citypointchurch.ca, and on our Facebook page at City Point Quebec. Uh, also, for some of you who, who don't know, everything that we do is recorded on Facebook and YouTube, and uh, we put these questions there, we put our sermons there, everything except for those Zoom calls, because that's copywritten uh, videos that we're playing, but everything is there. You can watch later, you can share later. We also post on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. The audio content goes up within a few days after we do it live. So uh, there's plenty of material for you to grow in your your look at the Bible and your knowledge, your understanding, your interpretation, your application of the Bible in your life, okay? Uh, So tonight, we are going to deal with this question. What does Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 mean? This is an excellent question because it brings up a whole bunch of other excellent questions. Uh, But what does Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 mean? Um, So I'm going to read this to you, and we'll have a number of passages of Scripture that are going to come on the screen uh, tonight. Let's get the first one up there so you can 
maybe take some notes or whatever you want to do. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is, well, to be honest, the first, the whole first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are now under mm, probably more scrutiny and a more of a magnifying glass than they've ever been before. Uh, there's always been debate about these first 11 chapters in particular in the book of Genesis, but I think in now perhaps more than ever. And the reason is that when you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you are immediately confronted uh, by a problem of how you are to interpret these things. Uh, because you have a clear account of creation and God creating everything out of nothing uh, in seven days, or sorry, six days, how do you interpret that? How do you interpret creation and the whole science thing? And is it opposed to science? Is it not opposed to science? And, you know, you learn Darwinian evolution in school and you say, well, wait a second. This is in clear opposition of this narrative in the book of Genesis. Is it a narrative, therefore? Are we supposed to interpret it mythologically? Are we supposed to interpret it allegorically? Is it a fairy tale? Is it an important myth? Is it real? Is it history? Is it whatever? And then you get into the fall of man, and you do, you know you got a talking snake to deal with, and you know this first couple, Adam and Eve, and then you've got the flood of Noah and the ark of Noah, and is this real? And does this really happen? And if it really happened, where's the evidence? And you run into all these problems, and then you see well, he's got these people living hundreds and hundreds of years old. Is that we supposed to interpret that in reality? Is this fantasy? Is this myth? Is this allegory? What are we supposed to do with it? And there's so much debate about this these days. Um, and so when we answer a question from the first ch uh, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, yeah, we run into this problem. And this is a big one tonight. Uh, so what does Genesis 3.15 mean? Now, what we have in Genesis chapter 3 is what's called the fall of man. And you have the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden by the serpent and uh, they were told not to eat from this tree, which God said is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And the uh, tempter comes to this couple and, um, and plays a little game with them. And uh, this was presented as the serpent here, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. And right away, our brains are going, what? what does that mean, right? And he said to the woman, so a talking serpent, we say, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for, uh, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Great question. I answered this, uh, or I used this as a question uh, in this series, your, God, your questions, God's questions. This is a marvelous question that God asks to them. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Verse 11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Uh, Blame game happening there. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And she said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here's the verse. You say, say, well, I'm troubled by all the other previous verses. Well, here's the verse with the question. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity. It's like a hostility. It's like a permanent wedge. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring, the woman. And he will crush your head. The he there is the enmity. He will crush your head. So the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, who appears to be the enmity, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does it mean? Now, when we approach the book of Genesis and these uh, uh, first 11 chapters in particular, very sticky, very difficult to, uh, especially when we're clouded with all these other uh, voices telling us none of the things that you just read could be actually possible. Uh, pastor, you know, you have to be a fool to to interpret that with a literal narrative, literal historical interpretation. This, These are the voices that are coming at us now. And um, I think... Uh, within within the, the household of faith, within the church, there is some wiggle room for interpretation of these passages. I think that there is. Um, now, the safest way to approach the question and to approach all these chapters is to, we have to try and figure out, all right, if we're going to figure out what Genesis 3.15 means to us, well, we have to figure out what are we reading here? Are we reading myth? Are we reading fantasy? Are we reading what is purported to be history? What is the author's intention? Now, the safest thing to do with this text right at the beginning is to quite simply read it at face value and give it the benefit of the doubt. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and now Genesis 3, if you're reading in sequence there, there isn't really anything 
in the text itself that tells us we have to somehow interpret this as a myth or as a fantasy or as a allegory or as a psychological truth or something but do not do not do not interpret it as literal historical uh, uh, fact uh, an event there's nothing in the text that tells us that we shouldn't do that in fact as we read it just as straightforward reading it's coming across fairly obviously as a narrative uh, now some would debate this and some some great scholars would debate this and they would say well if you inspect the language and the hebrew and so on it has a style uh that lends more to a uh, mythological type interpretation or some theological truth but doesn't really matter you know if adam and eve were actually real historical people or if we're really dealing with you know, some kind of serpent that maybe was supernaturally overcome by some kind of devil or, you know, there are, there are people who make pretty slick arguments who would say that it doesn't necessarily have to be interpreted that way. But when we read the text, it appears to be coming across as a straightforward narrative. So the best way to approach it is to say, all right, let's give it the benefit of the doubt and let's approach it that way, even though it brings up a pile of questions. Let's approach it that way, and let's see what does the rest of the Bible do with it. Does the rest of the Bible uh, somehow tell us, no, 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 don't interpret it that way. <laughs> don't. There was no real Adam and Eve. There was no real fall. You know, does the Bible somehow tell us, no, don't take that direction. Um, so that's what we do with this passage and with really the whole the whole first 11 chapters of Genesis as we look around in the rest of Scripture and we see, well, what is it? Does Scripture interpret Scripture? Uh, and that's a great principle of Bible reading and Bible interpretation. Let Scripture interpret itself and let the chips fall wherever they fall. Um, if they lead you down a conclusion that, whoa, this is, this is not going to be a popular interpretation, uh, so what? <laughs> if, if you're persuaded that, look, this is what the Bible is teaching, it may not be popular, but it seems to be what the Bible is teaching. We can reject it if we want, but let's at least be honest and approach the text with integrity and say, well, look, this is what the Bible is teaching. So when we look at this theme of the fall, of man and we look at this idea of this somehow there's going to be a wedge between the the seed of the serpent whoever and whatever it or he is we're not sure as we read genesis 3 but we can be more sure if we read the rest of the bible watch um and there's going to be some type of um event uh that it seems to be that simultaneously the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, is going to um, experience a blow from the serpent or the seed of the serpent uh, that will strike his heel. And yet seemingly in the same event, an event that will come, uh, it doesn't happen in Genesis 3.15, but it's something that will come in the future. There's going to be a lethal blow dealt to the seed of the serpent. So this is a rough picture 
of of uh, uh, what we see here. So again, there is a wedge between the seed of the woman, uh, presumably a human, and the seed of the serpent. Not sure who that is, but there'll be an event, and in that event, a crushing, deadly blow will be given to the serpent, and yet a blow will also be given to the seed of the woman. Hmm, okay. Now, if we follow this whole thing through, if we follow the fall through the Scripture, and we see how does Scripture interpret Scripture, we see some interesting things, right? So, uh, let's say, um, speaking about what Jesus, um, how did Jesus approach this? How did Jesus approach uh, the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis? That would be helpful for us because we figure if Jesus interpreted it a certain way, we probably would be on good ground interpreting it the way that Jesus interpreted it. Now, when we do that, we see, well, Jesus doesn't tell us, you know, interpret these things allegorically or mythologically. Jesus seems to have believed in creation. He seems to have believed in a global flood. He seems to have believed in Adam and Eve. He seems to have believed in a, a, a literal devil. And he seems to have believed in the fall. Um, John chapter 8 verse 44 he's having quite a debate here uh with people who seem to have an air of belief about them but it's clear that he he's not so convinced of that and it's quite a confrontation um why is my language not clear to you verse 43 because you are unable to hear what i say you belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Oh boy, so Jesus believes in a literal devil. Hmm, uh, Diablos. Wow. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. What beginning? What lying? What murdering? Um, this appears to be an illusion. Uh, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. He's alluding to the fall. Uh, and there's some uh, history that he's referring to where the devil has lied where he has uh, murdered, and there, there's it, it happened at the beginning. So Jesus may very well be affirming here the whole thing in Genesis chapter three, First um, John chapter three verse eight, written by the same John. This is one of the letters that he wrote. You see something else here. Uh, and again, the whole New Testament uh, affirms the existence of a literal. Uh, supernatural uh, devil, uh, not not uh, not the same as what we see in popular culture and Hollywood and television and all that, but it does affirm an invisible supernatural figure that is intent on the destruction of uh, God's people and humanity at large uh, through lying through deception. We see this through the entire New Testament, really. 
First uh, John chapter three, verses seven and eight. Dear, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Wow, uh, that's that's uh, quite an interesting passage and could, again, be an allusion, a reference to the fall, and also a reference to the cross. When did Jesus destroy the devil's work? What did he do? Uh, is this passage in, in uh, Genesis 3.15 a rough but uh, initial reference to the events that took place on the cross of Christ? There you have a, a blow given to Jesus where he dies, but he is resurrected from the dead. And yet at the same time, you have a blow given to the devil, the Satan, which means adversary, that is portrayed in Scripture as a lethal blow. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, I didn't put it on your screen, but Colossians chapter 2 talks about how on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and principalities and made a public spectacle of them. Uh, could be a reference to the loss of power uh, over people's lives who come to faith in Christ because of his work on the cross. Interesting. Is that what Genesis 3.15 is? Um, another passage for you to consider on this, and this is probably the most decisive one uh, that helps us with Genesis 3 and verse 15, and this is from Colossians, Paul's letter uh, sorry, Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 4 and verse 4. Um, let me pick it up in verse 1 just to give you some context. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. He's trying to uh, make the case for believers being adoption adopted into the family of God as his children. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father so also when we were children we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world but when the time had fully come god sent his son if he sent his son then his son existed before that god sent his son born of a woman in some translations, the seed of a woman, born under law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons. Wow, so you've got uh, several pictures going on there, and that's just a sampling of some passages in the New Testament. Uh, let me give you another couple of them. This one is from Revelation chapter 12. And verse 17, so we've looked at a few different uh, genres of literature in these scriptures. You've got uh, a couple of letters. Um, uh, John is uh, one of the Gospels. And here you have an apocalypse 
uh, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Uh, no, that's not the verse that I want. Hmm. Uh, I want that, that. Yeah, here it is. Uh, sorry. Revelation 12. I will uh, I'll, I'll read to verse 9, uh, starting at verse 7. Sorry, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 12. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. You say, well, how do you interpret that? Well, just, just hold on. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with them. Now, however we choose to interpret the whole passage, here again you have a reference to the enemy, the Satan, the devil, the adversary. And here you have a few things. You have is, is the, the serpent image, clear reference to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, leads the whole world astray, again, by deception, attempting to deceive people. And he clearly is a spiritual, some sort of spiritual being. So this is all really sustaining a just a straight, literal reading of this narrative, this odd narrative in Genesis chapter 3. But there doesn't appear to be any clues or tips that we're supposed to somehow mythologize this and say well you know it doesn't it, it's it, it didn't really happen seems like the bible is teaching that it really did happen uh but again there's some wiggle room and you know even scholars uh you know christian bible scholars who deny the necessity of there being a literal actual historical fall will acknowledge the fall of man in another way. Um, and they have different ways of doing this. So it, it, it's not out of the realm of um, acceptability. You know, a Christian can interpret those things in, in whatever way they're... They, they, they have, there's all kinds of arguments for this. But I think um, the easiest way to interpret it is a straight, literal narrative. Strange as it is, yes, it contains spiritual stuff. It implies, doesn't imply it. It it declares the existence of the supernatural. Yes, uh, you know, maybe this this serpent creature was uh, was talking because of some kind of supernatural thing. Not the first time we see, or it is the first time we see a a, a creature talk in the Bible, but it's not the last. Right? There's a there's a donkey that that talks in in uh, the book of Numbers because of the power of God. Uh, so I mean, I, again, regardless of where it leads us, we have to say let Scripture interpret Scripture. If we do that, Scripture appears to be making a clear case that these things should be interpreted uh, uh, as a literal straight narrative basic literal straight narrative that seems to be the case here again i think there's tolerance for some wiggle room i know some terrific scholars not personally of course but read some terrific scholars who say no 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 no. it's not necessary to go that far uh but in my view it is the safest way 
to interpret uh, this passage. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, let me give you another one. Uh, this is from Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, verse 14. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews, but um, we just finished a series on it. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, this is talking about the nature of Jesus as a man, not just as God, but as man as well. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil that may be again the blow that is talked about in genesis 3 verse 14 there's a blow that is lethal to the uh, seed of the serpent and a blow that strikes the seed of the woman so is this a reference to Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection and the fact that he has provided for the forgiveness of sins and the defeat ultimately of evil through uh, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead and ultimately his second coming? The, the curious thing about Genesis 3.15 is it is not quoted anywhere else in the Bible. So nobody refers to Genesis 3:15 specifically, and uh, that would be that would be that would make the problem a lot easier to solve, make it a lot simpler for us. But doesn't do that. But when we survey these different passages of Scripture, and there are many more, um, so going over them, John 8:44, uh, 1 John 3:8, Galatians 4:4, 4, 4, Revelation 12:17, Hebrews 2:14. And there are many more that you can look at. You're going to see basically uh, um, uh, the idea of the fall of man supported. That there was an event where sin was introduced into the world through this first couple. And uh, they fell uh, morally. Uh, creation fell as a result. Redemption is necessary as a result. We're all kind of infected uh, by the sin problem. We intentionally choose to do it. We intentionally choose to uh, succumb to temptation. And we have a, a constant uh, uh, problem in our own heart where we have this affinity towards what is morally wrong. And uh, on the cross of Christ, he provides for the redemption of humanity. And his resurrection from the dead proves that it's true and proves that he's God. And uh, the hope of the second coming is uh, guaranteed for us by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we have hope not only for now, but also for eternity and hope for ultimate justice, ultimate redemption in the consummation of all things. So this is pretty well what the Bible teaches. Um, and... You know, there are, there are some, I, I just read a comment uh, uh, from a pastor about a, a guy named Jordan Peterson, really interesting Canadian psychologist, very popular, especially on the internet, and he has a great respect for the Bible, but interprets the Bible in a kind of a mythological, psychological approach and application and so on. Uh, but I mean, regardless of how you, how you try and interpret it, this is the story that is taught to us in the scripture take it or leave it interpret it how we want to but i think 
if we let Scripture teach us how to interpret. It is trying to tell us this thing that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 happened. Uh, It's not trying to tell us that this is mythology. Now, how does this apply to our lives, to you and me? Um, Let me give C a question here. Hey, Pastor Dan, nice, thank you for joining in with us. If you're still on, God bless you and your ministry at Brazard Evangelistic Center. Um, how does this apply to our lives? Well, uh, it's, a really, it's really good news uh, because when you realize that you do, in fact, have a, a sin problem and you do, in fact, uh, have no way to fix that problem on your own, and you can't religion your way into salvation, you can't work your way into moral goodness, you still realize that you have this problem inside of you that doesn't seem to have a cure. And you read this passage out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which seems to be this rough promise of something to come, uh, an event to come that will provide for redemption. That's good news. In fact, scholars have a name for this text, Genesis 3.15. They call it the Proto-Evangelium, the prototype of the gospel. The first mention, the first rough mention of the gospel is the way that it's often interpreted. And uh, gospel uh, is an old, old, uh, I think it comes from an old English term, good spell, uh, good news. But it's good news because you first realize the bad news, right? When you understand the bad news of sin, and then you see a way out, and then you see salvation provided, and God provides grace, and God provides mercy, and God provides forgiveness, then you realize how good that good news is. Uh, So I hope that answers the question, and... um, if you have more things you want to try and uh, and uh, you want me to try and tackle on this broadcast, send them in to me. Again, you can reach me uh, through Facebook or through our website. And uh, let me just have a word of prayer with you before we finish up tonight. Lord, I thank you for the people who are watching, people who will watch, people who will listen later. And I pray, Lord, in these days... Um, where your word is under so much scrutiny and under a magnifying glass, and there's so much uh, discussion and chatter uh, about even this passage from Genesis chapter 3. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to wrestle uh, and to approach your word with humility and to wrestle with it and to to interrogate uh, the Scripture and to meditate on the Scripture and to rightly interpret it and apply it to our lives. It's not always easy to do, but God, I pray you would help us, um, as we learned even yesterday, uh, to meditate on, to delight in your Word that we may see it transform our lives We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you tonight, and uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and look forward to being with you uh, again on Sunday morning. We're going to continue our series on the book of Psalms. If you want to attend in person, just go to our website at citypointchurch.ca, and you can click a link there 
to attend that in person, but we'll also stream it and uh, put it on our social media. And also the 14th of August, uh, if you're part of our church and you're watching, we need volunteers for our Back to School Bash, which is full, giving out school bags and school supplies to kids. And uh, we're going to have our own uh, evangelist, not our own, but evangelist uh, magician come in. He's going to do a great magic show where he uses that as an opportunity to teach the gospel message to people. So it's going to be a great time on August the 14th. You want to come and serve, let me know. You've got to do four hours from 8 to 12 on Saturday over at Cineplex in Brossard. Send me an email or a text or WhatsApp or whatever, and I'd love to get you involved. So until we meet again, God bless you, everyone. Have a great night.